Hey, good morning. Thank you, uh, Shelley and I got to go on a, an extended vacation in October. In 40 years of marriage, we've never been able to take a vacation when it's her birthday, and we really appreciate your grace in letting us go and uh, enjoy that time together. That's usually a high point in the, in the year of ministry in which everyone's returning from vacations and getting back into the swing of things, and so we've never taken a vacation at that time. I want to thank uh, Stephen, Eric, Tim, Brian, uh, Ray Vanderlaan for uh, filling in and uh, teaching us the word. And it's good to be back. It's good to see you. This morning, uh, I want you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, and I want you to hold your place at chapter 6 and chapter 17. Chapter 6 and chapter 17. Don't read it yet, because then you won't be listening to me, but uh, put your finger there. You don't mind me telling you what to do, do you? I don't like to be told what to do. I have to tell you that um, I guess it was kind of my rebellious streak that uh, continues to sometimes uh, jump up when others tell me what to do. Even my wonderful wife, Shelly, there are times that she'll just, she'll say to me, give me a smile. Well, you'd think, of course, but no, not me. It's like, what a challenge. I do not want to smile right now. Don't make me smile. Don't ask me to smile. I'm, okay, don't use that against me. I'm, I'm, I know I'm giving you dirt. My dad, when I was growing up, John, shake the man's hand firmly and look him in the eye. Repeatedly. And of course, say please and thank you. Please and thank you. And then he would impress upon me the fact that there are certain things you can do to show you weren't raised by wolves. Please and thank you are just two of them. But my mom was so gracious and so full of thanksgiving, and she would constantly remind me, John, count your many blessings. Count your many blessings. I was kind of a dark child. And I can remember times I would be in my room, even as an, especially when I was a teenager, because then it, it really began to bug me. And she would, she would knock on the door and stick her head in. And of course, I really didn't... I don't know what it is. Maybe it was just my teenage years, my adolescence. But, uh, you know, I'm trying to bust out of uh, being the child of my parents. And so she would stop and ask me how I'm doing, show interest and in, in love. After she would get home from work because she was supporting me. And, uh, and she'd show this real interest. And then she'd say, John, count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And I would say, yeah, 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 mom, thanks. Sure, okay, bye. Thursday is Thanksgiving. It's Thanksgiving Day. It's a day that we as a nation are called to count our many blessings, to name them one by one. We owe our national day of Thanksgiving to President Abraham Lincoln 
And though others were party to making it happen, it was the president who canonized the importance of a national day of gratitude in 1863 with this proclamation. And I'm going to just excerpt a bit of it. I invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father. And I recommend, I'll stop there. Perhaps you've already noted how the president worded his proclamation using appeals like, I invite, I recommend. He goes on to fervently implore. That's because gratitude and thanksgiving are voluntary. Not even a president can legislate a grateful heart. You can tell people to be thankful, but you can't make them. Giving thanks can be mandatory, but it cannot be made law. Presidents can't make you. Not even God can make you grateful and thankful. Giving thanks and gratitude are way more important than we realize. It's been a lifelong pursuit for me. I think it did start with my mother saying, count your many blessings, John. Name them one by one. But when Jesus filled my life, that's when gratitude began to really sink in. Because gratitude is a response to grace. The very word gratitude is the counterpart to grace. It's the answer that echoes grace. Grace. Gratitude. Giving thanks is more important than we realize. And this morning, although I can only start us, I want to start us thinking about why giving thanks is so important. I hardly slept last night because I was rattled with the fact that I'll fall way short of the high mark I want to hit this morning. I'm asking the Lord and the moving of his spirit to take his word and apply it to our lives because I find that this is so important. It is at the center of the Christian life. And it is a transforming, it, it's a handle on faith that transforms us. So I want to talk about gratitude. And I have three things I want to start us thinking about. First, it's in our best interest, entirely selfishly. It's in our best interest to be thankful, to be grateful. That's one. Second, it's at the core of the gospel. 
And this is something that we don't always appreciate. And third, it's the essence of faith, and it changes everything. It changes us, most of all. Well, it's in your best interest. Let's start right there. I mean, let's start with the selfish part, because that's what really motivates us. If it's good for us, then we can get on board. And gratitude and thankfulness is good for us. First of all, it's etiquette. It's the thing you're supposed to do. And I realize our society is losing sight of this, but it is truly something that distinguishes us from the animal world. And more importantly to us, when we express thanks and recognition and appreciation for favor, for kindness, because that's what grace is. Grace is generosity. It's kindness. It's a favor. It's not something that we can expect or that we can demand. It's not something that we've earned. It's something that someone does for us out of the kindness and goodness of their own intentions and heart. And for us to ignore it and deny it is only hurting ourselves first and foremost. Because when we deny and fail to acknowledge that kindness, it breaks a bond which is being established between two people. Someone's reaching out. Someone's expressing love, goodness, a favor. And it's a, it's a gesture. It's a smile. It's a welcome. And when we don't recognize it, in a sense, we're, we're saying no to it. Because all acts of kindness and generosity express a piece of us, Right? Think about that sometime, what you put into those things. Think about how you feel when it's not acknowledged or you don't get a thank you of any kind. And so in the end, and I'm speaking very selfishly, we hurt ourselves because people tend to back away from relationships in which kindness, goodness, is not appreciated. I think there is something deeper that's going on in acts of kindness, if you will, in benefaction and the benefactor-beneficiary relationship. And that is, is that at the essence of who we are, when we are kind and good to others, we're expressing our hearts in a, in a way that can be kind of a sign of vulnerability. You know, I almost think of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Uh, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. When someone does not show any reciprocity or response to an act of kindness, it does something fundamental. It breaks a sense of the justice and the balance in the world. I talk like that. That's not a way that we often do, but I talk that way because I want us to begin to appreciate that gratitude, thanksgiving, is at the core, at the heart of the gospel because it is a response to the grace of God in that gospel and what that grace should be doing in our lives. To better understand this, I want us to appreciate just for a moment, I'll try to be brief because it's a bigger issue than I can 
in any way depict or illustrate, but that is that in the Greco-Roman world, the, the, there was an, an honor-shame culture. And within the honor-shame culture was benefaction and the beneficiary, the benefactor-beneficiary relationship, the giver of a gift and the receiver of the gift who then, in kind, seeks to express thanks and gratitude. It was more than etiquette, more than a feeling. It was an obligation. In fact, statesmen, philosophers like Cicero and Seneca called gratitude the response to grace, the chief bond of human society. They both wrote major treatises on the subject, so they're not using their words lightly. The chief bond of human society. Peter J. Lightheart wrote a book called Gratitude and Intellectual History. I recommend it. It'll really put things in perspective. But philosophers, even the economies of government, are associated with the basic fundamental building blocks of favor and gratitude, grace and gratitude, gift and response, reciprocity. In the Greco-Roman world, it was a two-sided relationship. On the one side, grace was the generosity of the benefactor to grant some benefits to another person or group. On the other side, grace was the response to the benefactor and his or her gifts, namely gratitude, devotion, allegiance, praise, service, indebtedness. In fact, I ran across this some time ago. It came back to mind. This is when Julius Caesar is on the verge of changing the Roman Empire from a republic to a monarchy. That, In effect, without using the word king, he's going to rule the whole thing. And his close friend and aide, Mycenas, is advising him, and this is reported by Dio Cassius in this long speech. And whether it's perfectly accurate or not, it still reflects the benefactor-beneficiary relationship. Listen to what he says to Caesar. He's, he's trying to compel Caesar to be gracious and generous, a ruler of goodwill and favor and grace. And this is what he says to Caesar to encourage him in this direction. He says, you need never fear that the people who've received your benefactions your acts of generosity, will ever act ungratefully. For nothing so captivates. The word translated captivates is the word enslaves. Nothing so captivates and conciliates. The word is to domesticate the people, even foreigners and enemies as does the generosity of goodwill. Now that can only be the case in a culture that grasps that indeed the chief bond of human society is gratitude. That's lost to us. This idea of give and take and the bad side, the downside of it is it did create senses of obligation 
And there were people who actually showed favor to indebt people to them, to manipulate them, to use them. But to not show gratitude was considered ungrateful, to be an ingrate. And it was seen as something wicked, something that was a danger to society. The ungrateful person, the person who doesn't recognize the good. Why do I tell you all this? Because it is into this world that Jesus comes. And Jesus blows the whole thing up. And I want you to appreciate that. We have to appreciate that because in him blowing up this give and take, this grace and response, he's calling us to something more, something distinctive that's just as relevant today as it was then. Now you have your finger in Luke chapter 6. Let's look at Luke chapter 6 together. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 27. And Jesus is telling us, if you want to follow me, this is how crazy radical it is. This is, this is what sets me apart from all of our other philosophers that you might follow, all other teachers that you might follow. This is what is the earmark of who I am. Blessed, pardon me, But I say to you who hear, verse 27, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. What's he doing? He's enlarging the circle. You're not just indebted to people who are kind and gracious and good and loving. He's blowing the whole thing to pits. He's saying people that are ingrates, people who are ungood, unkind, do deserve, do get, do receive your love, your goodness, your blessing. What? Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. And whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks you. This is indiscriminate grace. You'll not see or hear or read of anything like this anywhere. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. And just as you want people to treat you, treat them in the same way. And if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? What? That's, this is, now he says, this is the way things operate. This is what you're already programmed to do. This is the way all your little circles of reciprocity already work. Here's the looping, the human looping in all the little echelons of society, in all your little groups at work, family, politics. This is the way it works. They love you, you love them back. So what credit is it to you, he says? Even sinners love those who love them. Even sinners who have no, no knowledge of God or, or reject him. They follow this same pattern. This is the way they live. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what, what credit is that to you? 
for even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, well, that's the way it works. I do you a favor, you owe me a favor in return. There's some kind of obligation. You're indebted to me. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way I operate, and that's not the way you're supposed to operate. You know, practically, this affects every area of our life, even today. Christians are generous and give freely and are gracious, even in their attitude, in their kindness. And, or is it? How many of us, I mean, it can ruin our day if somebody doesn't show appreciation. I've seen people leave churches because somebody didn't thank them enough. Tell me there isn't an obligation, a, a circle of reciprocity. But this is not the way Jesus said this operates. You're just indiscriminate. You're just like a sower throwing out seeds of grace and goodness. And here's why. He says in verse 35, but love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Why? Because that's what he does. That's the way he is with you. That's the way he is with me. That's the way he is with his people. So we always interact and operate with him, not against each other. And when someone fails us, that doesn't change us. And when someone blesses us, it doesn't indebt us. Wow, how different Christians would be in this world and in this society. Jesus blew it up. Now turn over to chapter 17. Ten lepers. I've got time. Verse 11, 17, verse 11. It came about while he was on his way to Jerusalem and he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourself to the priests. And it came about, as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his feet at Jesus, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now I want you to appreciate something 
there are a couple of things. First of all, Jesus didn't say, is there only one that returned to give me thanks? He said, to give God thanks. That's important. He thanked Jesus, but Jesus didn't need his thanks, but he wanted this man, this one, just like he wanted the other nine to give thanks and praise, recognition and acknowledgement to God. But the lepers healed in verse 14. Only one returns. And Jesus recognizes this man's gratitude. We recognize it too. We like this man because he returns. It's only then though that we're told he's a Samaritan, which is important. And when Jesus acknowledges his gratitude, he characterizes him as a foreigner to underscore the fact that this man is not a likely candidate to acknowledge God, to recognize what he has done and express it in gratitude and thanksgiving. He's honoring this man and he's almost using him as a foil or as an example to goad his disciples because this would be like someone that we would think is what you know just has all the wrong thinking when it comes to God and I don't know who you would pick to characterize them but you might pick someone that's even beyond the veil of Christianity Jesus draws attention to the fact that this outcast, ex-leper, this Samaritan, this foreigner lacking the right theology has a right heart in giving praise to God. Here's a second thing I want you to appreciate. The Samaritan leper experienced more than a change from sickness to health. This is very important. All the lepers were healed. But the Samaritan is singled out by Jesus because he changed in a deeper way. From Jesus' final words to the Samaritan, we see that his life, this Samaritan now overflows with praise of God and gratitude to Jesus. And Jesus says, your faith has, and all the translations say made you well, but the word is saved you. It is the same word that is used for everything that we associate throughout the rest of the New Testament in Paul's letters of the salvation of God. Certainly it's appropriate to translate that in the context of healing, made you well, because saved has a general or a peripheral understanding that meaning that associated with deliverance, removal from harm, etc. But the fact that Luke gives us this word here, he's telling us there's something more going on here. And indeed, it's evident that salvation includes something more. It goes beyond the healing of his leprosy because there are nine that were also healed of leprosy. What is the difference? His gratitude. And the strong contrast of the Samaritan with the other nine makes it plain that salvation applies to the Samaritan in a way that it does not apply to the other nine. The joy of praising God is a vital part of getting it, of salvation. 
which the Samaritan has experienced through faith. Your faith. This is not just content. This is the idea that I recognize what God has done to me. He's in touch with that in a profound way that exhibits itself in great praise and joy, even returning to Jesus. And why is this important? Why is it important that the Samaritan returns to Jesus and Jesus draws attention to it by criticizing the other nine? It's because gratitude is important. The Samaritan is an example of the transformation that praise and thanksgiving creates. The Samaritan creates a more permanent bond with Jesus through gratitude. Jesus recognizes his gratitude as proper faith, the appropriate response, the recognition of what has happened. By the way, I would direct you to Jesus' parable of the unjust steward in Matthew 18, starting at verse 23. The servant, you'll recall, was indebted to the king to an amount of 10,000 talents of silver, an incalculable amount for a slave. I mean, if, if that had really happened, it's a parable, it's, it, it's hyperbole, it's exaggeration to make a point. It's a debt he can never repay. Yet when the king calls him to repay it, the servant falls on his face, begs for forgiveness, and the king withholds his anger in the interest of helping that slave, and he forgives the debt, wipes it out. And the slave, we're told, leaves that audience with the king and bumps into a fellow slave who owed him a hundred denarii. One six hundred thousandth of what he'd been forgiven. Just a fraction, a crumb. And he says, pay me what you owe me. And the slave begs him just like he begged the king. And the slave has no mercy, no gratitude that issues in forgiveness, in tearing up this fellow slave's debt to him. And he throws him in prison. And when the king hears about that, he calls that slave back in. And I imagine it's like the slave had his bill of cancellation. And the king says, you ungrateful slave. And I imagine him saying, well, I've got the cancellation right here. Yeah, that's your writing. You said, forgiven. Debt canceled. And the king takes it out of his hand, tears it up, has him thrown in prison. And then Jesus says, if you don't forgive others from the heart, that's the key word. That's how it ends. If you don't forgive others from the heart, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. It should be easy for him to forgive us because we should be the most forgiving people on earth. That's gratitude. That's grace. How can I deny others when he has been so gracious to me? Am I slow on the uptick sometimes? I am but I'm getting better all the time.
and it floods my soul constantly. John, how can you be initially upset or angry? You've done what that person's done, if not in kind, in principle, thousands of times, if not in practice, in attitude. Isn't that the way Jesus teaches us? Look on your heart. But it's there that grace does the healing, does the reparation, changes us so deeply that we are fundamentally different people. That's why it's the essence of faith that changes everything. Point three. C.S. Lewis in a small book called Reflections on the Psalms devotes a chapter to the issue of praise in the Psalms. As a new believer, he was initially offended by the call to praise, just like me. You know, I don't want to be told what to do. And the psalmists are constantly saying, praise the Lord. Oh, praise the Lord with me. And that kind of put Lewis off. The the king of all creation, the Lord of lords, needs our praise? Seems a little petty, he thought, but he began to think about it, and he discovered two things, that the process of praise and thanksgiving is an experience of God's presence. I've got to be real brief, but secondly, praise and thanksgiving is necessary to complete the enjoyment. And he went on to illustrate how people, when they're excited about something good that is happening in their lives, it can be something trivial or something large. They want others to join in rejoicing with them. That's because such praise and acknowledgement completes the transaction of grace in our being. But it also issues in grace unto others. Lewis was talking about the psalmist, but when we get to the New Testament, it's, as I said, with Jesus and then with the Apostle Paul and the other apostles, but especially the Apostle Paul, we see it because he wrote 13 letters that we still have. It's indiscriminate thanksgiving. Not only does he use 59 times words for gratitude, thanks, and praise. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. Ephesians 5.20, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.7 and 3.17, Abound in thanksgiving. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God. Ephesians 5, 4, he even sees thanksgiving as the antidote, the counter move to filthiness and silly talk, coarse jesting, things which are not fitting. But rather, he says, thanksgiving. This is, what I'm trying to help us understand, this is not etiquette. This is transforming stuff. When uh, Stephen Elliott and I were backpacking this last summer, we were walking through a bed of flowers. The the spring flowers were still out. And I said, Stephen, look at that. 
And here was this, this, the ground was covered with these beautiful flowers and they were all facing and leaning toward the rising sun. They call those heliotropic flowers. Heliosun, tropic turning. They move with the sun. They follow. They really follow the sun. And I read this the other day. Flowers that follow the sun do so even on cloudy days. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything. Make your petitions known to God with thanksgiving because thanksgiving floods our hearts with faith of a gracious and good God who will take care of us, not just in the past, not just now, but even in the future. And that breaks the bonds wide open for us to be generous hearted. And so I'm big on thanking God as much, if not more, as we beg God, seeing God's grace, and not just in what encourages us, but in everything, on remembering God's grace in the past, not just the present, even in the future, opening our hearts to his grace, not just on Sundays, and not just on the Thursday next, the last Thursday of November. My mom used to say, count your many blessings. It came from a song I learned uh, later on. I didn't realize it at the time. When upon life's billows, you are tempest-tossed. When you are discouraged, thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God hath done. Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God hath done. We stand. Lord, we praise you and thank you. Your grace even lifts us up when our feelings are mixed because we want so much to be a gracious, thankful, giving people. And yet we're equally aware that we can be so stingy and small-hearted. And that's not how we want to be. Your grace lifts us up every time we stumble that we might again follow you in your wild, your radical ways. Make us people of big hearts, big grace, because you are a God of big giving, and we are thankful. Thankful for Jesus. Thankful for your spirit. In your son's name, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. God bless you.